So happy Valentine's. It's always so interesting that this retreat happens over Valentine's. It's not exactly Hallmark cards we're experiencing in here. Quite as rosy. I remember I driving here last year or the year before, and there was an ad on the radio that said, "This year, buy your sweetie a gift of plastic surgery." <laughs> I thought, "Whoa!" <laughs> I don't think that would go down very well. I love you as you are, but please get a nose job. Here we have the discrepancy between meta and what we commonly regard as love. So I have a couple of love poems for you. They're not hallmark, but this one's from Rumi. There are love stories and there are obliteration into love. You've been walking the ocean's edge, holding up your robes to keep them dry. You must dive naked under and deeper, under a thousand times deeper. Open completely. Let your spirit ear listen to this green dome's passionate murmur. Let the cords of your robe be untied. Shiver in this new love beyond all and above. Get a pretty deep understanding of what love is. It looks like the other poem that I had has fallen out on the way here, so. This is Walt Whitman's love poem to himself. And as to me, I know of nothing else but miracles. I love that. And as to me, I know of nothing else but miracles. How would our life be if we saw ourselves like that, if we really fell in love with ourselves like that? When I was studying with a teacher in India called Punjaji, a beloved teacher of mine, and people would often uh, get married there. They would stay there for a while and meet up with somebody and or in the process of getting married. And they'd ask him questions about getting married, and shall they marry, shall they not marry? And he would always retort with the the answer, marry the one that will never leave you. Marry that one which will never leave you. And he wasn't talking about a person. So tonight I want to talk about facets facets of metta, facets of the heart of metta, qualities uh, that Sharon referred to the other day, uh, the Brahma Viharas, what's known as the divine abodes of loving kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. And I'll mostly be speaking about compassion and the place of compassion, how it relates to metta and the place of uh, mudita, or appreciative joy. So the way I understand this teaching of the Brahma Viharas is it's like the is, is is like the heart is like a multifaceted jewel. 
And depending on how the light hits the jewel, depending on where the the jewel is turned, um, we see different qualities within the jewel of our own hearts. So primarily here we're cultivating the, the essence of our hearts, the essence of love, metta. But in certain situations when that loving heart meets pain, meets suffering, meets despair, meets anguish, it shifts in a quality, it becomes a qualitative shift to uh, compassion. And when that same heart meets joy or delight or success or happiness of others, it shifts again in tone to one of appreciative uh, joy, celebrating and delighting in the happiness and the joy it's, it's finding. And though these three qualities are stabilized, grounded, centered by the quality and understanding of equanimity, which really uh, deeply arises through our mindfulness practice. And Shan will talk more about that in the next, in tomorrow. So they're, they're divine abodes because they're sublime. These are very rich, uh, beautiful qualities. And they're also not so common in this world, as you know. And as you've seen in these last days, just like we said about mindfulness practice, the meta practice is simple but not easy. I know on the second day in the groups, people were saying, oh, I'm so glad now we're doing meta. That mindfulness practice was really hard. Such a relief to be doing meta. And now I'm hearing people say, you know, that mindfulness practice is looking really good right now. <laughs> I just want to rest and relax and open and not be so effortful and doing and so it's not easy to sustain this quality, this open-heartedness, and the concentration. You don't feel alone if that's the true for you. That it's 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 why it's called a practice, and it's also a purification practice in that it brings up. Obstacles brings up anything that's in the way of the heart staying open. Not just the hindrances that we talked about, but our emotional pain, our physical pain, pain of loss and anguish from the past, relationship pain, family pain, world pain, pain of the environment. Suzuki Roshi says, you don't really know what it means to sit in meditation until there is some great difficulty in your life. Not until something happens like the grave illness of someone you love. And then you are tearing your hair out and pacing back and forth in the corridor of the hospital and there's nothing you can do. And finally you take a seat in the midst of your fears and sorrows and thoughts and worries and you just sit in the middle of it all. And that's the moment you begin to understand the power of your practice. So when these things come up, these difficulties, our inner difficulties, our outer difficulties in our lives, that's where the practice really comes uh, to serve, comes to bear. That's why we um, do this cultivating work of the heart, so we can meet these circumstances with some evenness and some open-heartedness. So I want to read a little story. Um, 
from D.S. Bennett. This is from the Sun magazine. And it's an example of how compassion can arise in the heart quite naturally and innately, just as metta can, just as metta is an essential quality, so is compassion. She says, Mother always assured me that the unspeakable punishments were bound to befall any child as naughty as I was. If I were you, she'd say, I'd be afraid to go to sleep at night for fear God would strike me dead. She would speak these words softly and regretfully as though saddened by her errant daughter's fate. After describing years of abuse and violation, Bennett goes on, the most devastating words my mother ever spoke to me came when I asked her if she loved me. I had just been escorted home by the police after one of my many attempts to run away, so it was bad timing on my part. (laughs) However, she answered, her mother answered to my question of, um, do you love me? She answers, how could anybody ever love you? It took me almost 50 years to heal the damage from all her ugly remarks. Recently, I remembered a childhood ritual of mine that helped me survive. From the age of five or six until I was well into my teens, whenever I had trouble sleeping, I would slip out from under the covers and steal into the kitchen for a bit of bread or cheese, which I'd carry back to bed with me. There I'd pretend my hands belonged to someone else, a comforting, reassuring being without a name, an angel perhaps. The right hand would feed me little bites of cheese or bread as the left hand stroked my cheeks and hair. My eyes closed. I would whisper softly to myself, There, there, go to sleep. You're safe now. Everything will be all right. I love you. So it's a remarkable story that speaks to, you know, the despite whatever circumstances we survive, and we've all we all have our stories, that there's this amazing capacity in us that knows what it means to love, to care, to cherish, to be kind. And you might just notice what you're feeling as you listen to that story. If it touches you, um, how easily compassion can be evoked, can be stirred. So what exactly is this compassion? I I had trouble with this word for a long time because it sounds very lofty. Just like love love and kindness can sound sort of highfalutin, compassion sounded very grand. I thought, well, I can't possibly be compassionate. And that's like like for bodhisattvas or buddhas or something like that. Um, But it's really, uh, just like meta, it's a very simple, ordinary, accessible quality. It's also very beautiful and grand in its its capacity. Um, But it's really the, there's there's many different facets to it, but it's really the, 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 just like when you hear somebody crying in the hall, it's that simple, innate response of, oh, someone's suffering, someone's in pain. There's a sense of empathy, a sense of, uh, we feel, you know, there's a resonance in our hearts when the hearts open. You know, when watching TV or watching the news and we see images, someone gave me some these very powerful photo cards of um, uh, pictures of melting icebergs and every other, every other, it was like a, pocketbook, every other picture was a melting iceberg and every other picture was uh, pictures of famine in, uh, I think it was in the Congo, 
very devastating images of famine and linking these two uh, these two global situations and just just it was just so moving to see these these pictures of of, of the, the suffering and it's just in the heart when it's open naturally feels naturally resonates the, the Buddha talked about compassion as the heart quivering in response to pain. We feel a sense of tenderness when we're feeling this quality of compassion. We feel for the tenderness of life, for the fragility of life. There's a lovely line from St. John of the Cross. Here he says, Tenderly I now touch all things, knowing one day we will part. And if I mentioned this uh, story that we have at Spirit Rock every year, we have this uh, several swallows, birds' nests that, that are right above the um, entrance to the bathroom doors just in, in, outside the meditation hall. And so every year we get several um, clusters of little swallow chicks uh, that are sitting in their nests, shivering and waiting for mom and pop to come and bring the worms. And, and the heart just, just melts, you know, seeing these lovely, delicate, beautiful little beings, so vulnerable, so it's this feeling of care, it's this feeling of empathy. Uh, it's a feeling of sometimes of a sadness. When we hear what's happening to the earth, when we hear that um, whales are being deafened by naval sonar, you know, we feel, we resonate with the suffering that's happening. This is from the poet Rilke. You have had many and great sadnesses, But please consider whether these great sadnesses have not gone right to the center of yourself, whether much in you has not altered, whether you have not somewhere at some point of your being undergone a change while you were sad. For our sadnesses are the moments when something new has entered us, something unknown, and our feelings grow mute in the perplexity. Everything in us withdraws, the stillness comes, and the new, which no one knows, stands in the midst of it and is silent. So when we open to these things, they're profoundly transformative, as he's alluding to. There's also a lot of wisdom that arises in compassion, just like there is with metta. So much learning comes when we turn towards pain and suffering, whether it's our own or somebody else's or in the world. There's a lovely story that I'm sure many of you know of um, uh, Kisa Gotami, uh, who was a, um, uh, an Indian woman at the time of the Buddha who had just lost her uh, firstborn son, which is a big deal uh, to anybody, but particularly in Indian culture, um, to lose the firstborn son. Uh, it's tragic. And um, so she comes to the Buddha and hears that he's a great saint and a great teacher and she asks if he can, if she can, if he can bring her son back to life, and she's in terrible despair, as you, as you would imagine. And he says, um, "Well, we'll see. But first, you have to bring me a mustard seed from a house that's known no loss, known no uh, loss of life." So she's heartened by the prospect of getting some help from the Buddha. So she goes into the, to the nearest village and starts knocking on the doors of different houses. Goes to the first house. I, I, can you give me a mustard seed? And they say, "Oh, sure, we have mustard seed, but it has to be from a house 
where nobody here has died. And they just laughed. They said, what do you mean? No one, you know, plenty of people have died here. And she goes, okay, I'm sorry, I can't take it. So she goes to the next house. And of course, here's the same story again and again and again until she gets to the end of the village and she realizes the universal nature of her pain, of loss, of grief, of death, is universal. And so she takes time to bury her son and goes back to the Buddha and uh, asks for teachings and eventually ordains and becomes a very distinguished practitioner. So compassion is both a quality, but it's also, it's very dynamic. It's not static. And it expresses itself. It's a movement of the heart, both to feel the suffering, but also the wish to relieve pain and suffering in the world. Just as, uh, you know, if our body is hurt, we naturally move to take care of it. Compassion is that same natural response that wants to, to reach out and take care. So how do we go about developing compassion? How do we cultivate and really bring forth this quality? Well, primarily, the more we practice meta practice, actually, that it becomes more accessible because it's through meta practice we cultivate and open and nurture and nourish the heart. But also, there's a specific way that we can uh, cultivate it in the way that we relate to pain and suffering. Normally, when pain and suffering comes up in ourselves, in each other, in the world, our first response is to recoil, is to, to get away from the source of the discomfort and the pain, the natural organic response. Um, there's a lovely line from Achan Chah who says, by running away from suffering, we, we run towards it. By running away from suffering, we, we run towards it. So we can see that when we run away, we can't actually run away. We can maybe temporarily postpone something or avoid something. But when there's deep pain arising in ourselves or in our, in our relationships, there's only so far we can hide before it comes back and actually hits us from behind. So our practice, is a, the practice of compassion is a very courageous practice of turning towards that which is difficult, that which is painful. So on the retreat, um, we have plenty of opportunity, as you've probably noticed sitting here, to practice this. Because no matter how um, idyllic we might make this uh, retreat center and environment, uh, pain and suffering is the nature of this this world. Having a body, having a mind, having a history, having relationships, having family, having a heart that's open and feeling and sensitive will be will be touched and have to experience different levels of pain. Whether it's from what arises here or from what you've brought here, many people have talked about the different sufferings that you're working with, whether it's the suffering of loss, recent loss, many people have lost people recently, loved ones, family, friends, or, or people are talking about difficult relationships, or, or the recent loss of relationships, or just the struggle of relationship, either intimate relationship or family relationship. 
or physical pain. All the different ways that we experience physical pain or emotional pain, mental pain. I don't really need to, to roll off a list because we have PhDs in suffering and pain. Or just the way that we're closed, that we, you know, that we, that we uh, wish to develop this quality of metta and we find that our heart's contracted and tight and constricted and our shoulders are tight because we don't want to open it because it's, there's some pain that we have to move through in order to open. As Anayas Nin once wrote, and the day came when the risk to remain in a tight bud was more painful than the risk it took to blossom. So at some point we come to that place where we go, you know, to be like this is really painful. I need to see if I can, in a soft way, open. Look into that which is causing me to to close or contract. And the first thing that's needed is for us to feel it. To feel the pain or the anguish or the, the hurt or the suffering. To really turn towards it. And so often what happens when we're doing metapractice is we'll be, you know, uh, saying the phrases, and then something will arise, some, some, something from the present or the past that's difficult. And um, it's very easy to, um, to sort of overlook that rather than actually to, to turn towards what we're experiencing in the moment and say, oh, this is, this is painful, this is suffering. And actually, the first step in cultivating compassion is to recognize when pain is present, to recognize when suffering is present. Often we don't really register it. We just keep doing what we're doing, trying to ignore it, trying to push it away, trying to get on with our lives or our practice. It's like, oh, wait a minute. Oh, I'm suffering. This is suffering. Can, how can I be with myself in a way that's kind, that's gentle, that's caring? Another way that we experience pain and, and several of you I've talked to talk about this, is we start doing the practice, saying the phrases, wishing others well, and then all the layers of judgment that come in, the, stand, the high standards that we have, the, the, well, it's day four now and my meta should be at least embracing all beings everywhere in all time and space. So the way that we talk to ourselves, the way that we beat ourselves up, the way the critic is evaluating every phrase and every feeling and every meditation and every uh, walking practice and saying, this is not good enough. Come on already. Like, how long does it take to cultivate metta? Anybody noticing a little self-judgment while they're here? My metta's not good enough. I'm not good enough. Or I'm not worthy to receive metta. I'm not worthy to give it. Yeah, these old tapes, these old stories. And it's very painful. The critic is one of the most painful things that we, that we have to learn how to work with, just as we have to learn to work with anything. I, uh, I feel like I have a PhD in, in, in a critic, or I did have, um, and had to do a lot of work around working with it and, 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 and disengaging it from, from my practice. 
And the thing that transformed it the most was actually when I finally decided to feel the impact of all those statements. You're not good enough, your practice is hopeless, you're never going to get anywhere, I don't know why you bother. You know know the, the lines, right? When we actually open to feel the impact of the way that we talk to ourselves with cruelty and harshness and judgment, cruelty is, is the far enemy of compassion. Uh, and to really let that into the heart, to feel the impact is really important. Because when we feel the suffering of a habit or a tendency, we really, really register it. It allows us to disengage a little from it. It allows us to become disenchanted. It allows us to release it, to let it go a little more easily. There's a cartoon that I read sometimes from from a cartoon strip, Rhymes with Oranges, that um, uh, pokes a little fun at the critic. It's called A Checklist of Feeling Pathetic, and see if you notice things that you do in, in, in here. Examine your face closely in the mirror and notice all your flaws. I had a friend who I t- took a long time to convince to remove the 10 times magnification mirror. <laughs> she went down to an eight times. I said, no wonder you're noticing all the flaws. <laughs> Spots look like mountains. And <laughs> so this cartoon strip goes on. Rel- relive embarrassing, awful moments that occurred years ago. Choose someone and compare yourself unfavorably to them. Think about all the people you regularly disappoint. And disregard all compliments, especially from people who supposedly love you. There's a picture of a woman, and there's a, the caption says, Oh, you look great. And she's saying, she's thinking, don't patronize me. <laughs> so we do that, you know, and it's really good to, to have a sense of humor because our mind is a funny thing. And if we don't find the sense of humor, it's just not funny. Um, it's good to be light. And it's also good to be, uh, there's a place also, sometimes when we hear about these qualities of matter or compassion, sometimes people think, well, does that mean I have to be a doormat? Does that mean I have to be all kind of nicey-nicey and kind of... No, it doesn't. There's a place for uh, fierceness. There's a place for fierce compassion. And one of the places to apply fierce compassion is with your critic. It's like, enough. Stop. This is not true. I don't need to hear this. Enough already. Um... So also, as we practice, um, another important place for compassion is that as we become more aware, we see all the ways that we create suffering for ourselves. And it's very easy for us to, th- to, to then uh, really be harsh with ourselves because we, we, at some point we know better, but the strength of our habits the strength of these habitual tendencies, which Sharon talked about, are so strong that they keep, they keep resurfacing. We keep buying into them. And it's just very easy to be critical of ourselves for not letting go. But as you know, it's very hard to let go. If we could let go, we would. So, for instance, um, the ways that we get caught in grasping, in longing, in attachment. We know that it, to be attached is suffering but that doesn't stop us from getting attached. We know that 
grasping and holding on is, is suffering, but we, we grasp and hold on. And so to feel the suffering of that is really the appropriate response not to judge it. I had a friend who sat here some years ago and she was on a, on a long course and she was bored one day, so she went into the kitchen to see what the menu was and she noticed it was pizza on Friday and it was like Monday. So, of course, what did she do? She thought about pizza every single meditation for five days. And lunchtime came around and she tried to pretend not to be quite at the front of the line, you know, and trying to take too much of the first, the first round. And she sits down, she's ready for this big moment, you know, pizza, you know, what's it going to be? And she gets all the different varieties. And then she takes one bite and the thought came, oh, it's pizza. It's just pizza. It's okay, but like it wasn't worth five days of thinking. <laughs> and she knew that, but that's the habit of the mind, you know, to think, oh, if I get something in the future, that's what's what going to do it. Or habits of um, the way that we resist what's true, the way that we resist and have aversion and reactivity to whatever's in front of us. To the weather, oh, I hate it when it's sleeting and raining and snowy and cold. And, um, and we contract and, we, and we, we resist and we get small and we, we suffer. And we know that it's painful and, and uh, unwise to contract, and yet we do. And again, the doorway to, to, to liberating that, that habit is to feel the pain of it. What's it like when we contract, when we feel jealousy? or when we feel competitiveness, or rage, or uh, feel um, deficient. You know? We can push it away with aversion and hatred, or we can feel the pain of it. When we acknowledge the pain of it, it allows the heart to open. Or the way that we believe our thoughts, the way we take our thoughts to be true. I am such and such a person. If I do this, then I'll be better. Or if I do that, I'll be happy. So, blocks to compassion. How come it doesn't arise so naturally all the time? Well, mainly, as I've said, the way that we keep protecting ourselves and avoiding pain. The way that we avoid pain in others in relationships. The way that we shut down. I remember being on a, a three-month retreat here with a good friend of mine, and she uh, had um, particular. Um, uh, she was going through a very difficult period in her life, and much as I loved her and cared about her, there was a way that I couldn't tolerate the particular pain that she was going through. So there was a way that I couldn't fully open to her because I couldn't open to it in myself, and it was only, ironically, in that retreat that I sort of went through the same pain and was able to open it to it with compassion, that I was actually able to be open with her. So often we, f- we, we shut down from pain or we fear pain because we think it's going to overwhelm us. We think if we really allow this sadness or this grief or this loss or the sense of rejection or hopelessness or despair, that if we really feel it, we'll drown and we'll never come out of it. Of course, the opposite is really true that the more that we fend something off, what happens? It just stays around. It just stays on the sideline, but it keeps nagging at us. I remember I had uh, felt like sadness was around for years because I was always fending off sadness. 
until I opened to the sadness and really felt it and went through that, and the sadness dissipated. Ram Das, I think, wrote, uh, I think he wrote this. He said, It's the one thing to have our heart engaged, it's another to have it overwhelmed or broken. Here lies our aversion to suffering. So we, we want to engage our hearts, but there's a fear that we'll, they'll be broken. Hearts don't actually get broken, they get maybe shut down. So we also avoid pain by numbing out. We all have our favorite ways to check out, whether it's TV or food or ice cream or chocolate or alcohol. or um, We'll have ways of just keeping that layer of pain uh, low down. I have somebody in my family who uh, was, was in a difficult relationship and I said to him, well, how's it going? What are you doing? He says, well, I just, you know, I just smile and I just sort of don't think about it too much and hope it will go away. I said, good luck. <laughs> or we try to think our pain away. You know, when there's some sadness or loss or grief or whatever comes up, we, it's, it's more comfortable for us to think about it than feel it. We try to fix it. We try to analyze it. We try to think it away. So there's compassion as a feeling as a quality, and there's compassion as engagement. A quality that feels the suffering in a situation or in the world, and it inspires us to act. And as I said, it takes a lot of courage to turn towards our pain. It's not a natural instinct. And yet it's, it's a thing that really gives us that resilience and strength. I know all the times, different times that I've turned towards the suffering in my own life and experience and heart, I, I, I feel the visceral resilience and fearlessness that comes from doing that and the courage. This is from Trungpa Rinpoche. When you awaken your heart, you find to your surprise that your heart is empty. And if you search for the awakened heart, there is nothing but tenderness. And if you open your eyes to the rest of the world, you feel tremendous sadness. This experience of sadness is unconditioned. It occurs because your heart is completely exposed. It is this tender heart of a warrior that has the power to heal the world. The tender heart of a warrior that has the power to heal the world. So you, the question often arises, well, what does this have to do with life and suffering and hunger and exploitation and violence and greed? And it has a lot to do with that because we're cultivating this powerful presence. Love is a very, very powerful force, as many people have shown us, these great leaders, whether it's Gandhi or King or others, Tremendous forces of love and the, the, the uh, impact of their lives are phenomenal. And the, the Buddha's life was a testament to compassion. He taught out of compassion. He saw that people were creating suffering and wanted to relieve that suffering. That's, that's why we're here today. It's one of the most beautiful qualities in spiritual life is this, this wish, this deep wish, sometimes called bodhicitta, this wish to relieve 
the suffering of all beings. This is from George Bernard Shaw. This is the true joy in life, being used for a purpose recognized by yourself as a mighty one, being a force of nature instead of complaining that the world will not devote itself to making you happy. I am of the opinion that my life belongs to the whole community, and as long as I live, it is my privilege to do for it whatever I can. I want to be thoroughly used up when I die, so the harder I work, the more I live. Life is no brief candle to me. It is rather a splendid torch I have hold of for the moment, and I want to make it burn as brightly as possible before handing it on to future generations. So as our practice deepens, that motivation, that, that fearless heart that wants to relieve the suffering uh, becomes, starts to become more central, starts to become uh, the only thing left to do is to bring about the relief of suffering in the world. And Shantideva, great Buddhist teacher from the 8th century, said, I should dispel the pain of others because it hurts like my own. Just like feeding myself, I hope for nothing in return. So as our heart opens, as our the sense of boundary softens, then uh, the, the, um, the desire to relieve suffering, the ripples of that grows. The, the, um, the range of what we call ourselves grows. So our heart sort of expands to, to want to, to relieve greater levels of suffering. So there's the quality of compassion turned towards pain, and then there's a the quality of mudita, which is the quality of the heart turned towards joy or the happiness of others. It's a very beautiful quality. The Buddha said it's the rarest of the Brahma Viharas, which is interesting. This capacity to appreciate the happiness of others. There's a lovely story that uh, was happened here in the last retreat last year uh, when one morning uh, Gina was giving instructions and she said, before I give the instructions, I have a little announcement. And she said, today I am a grandmother. And the whole room, the whole room just went... <gasps> And just filled with mudita. It was, it was just a delicious moment, really delicious. And it's such a beautiful quality to delight in the joy of others because it actually just it magnifies the joy. It just ripples out. And the Dalai Lama said, mudita increases my chance of happiness, happiness by six billion to one. <laughs> you know, so we, you know, if, if, we're not, if we don't contract around people being happy and joyful and we don't and get competitive or whatever, then there's how many opportunities to be happy and to celebrate and to rejoice? Many, 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 many. So this quality is both um, the ability to appreciate the happiness of others and to appreciate the joy and the beauty in the world. I was just coming over here from, I'm staying down at Gaston Pond, and um, in one of the houses, there's a little black lab. He's four months old. And you know what young labs are like? They, can, they can't contain themselves. They're so ecstatic and just like, ah. <laughs> and my heart, it just, you know, the heart can't help but kind of bloom. 
with delight, with with you know, seeing his delight, you know, just this uh, delight fest. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're feeling down, just think about a black lab and <laughs> a puppy. Your mind's like a you know, minds are like black lab puppy minds, you know. So. And when the heart's open, we're much more likely to feel this quality. There was uh, somebody who was telling me beautifully today about he was just eating his oatmeal and um, just uh, noticing the seeds and all the different things in, in, in the breakfast and was really moved by that sense of being uh, infinitely supported by everything in the world and the universe. You know, from the moon and the sun and the rain, they all conspired to create this oatmeal, you know. Who'd have thought in a bowl of oatmeal was that capacity for joy? Same as sometimes we feel that when we're sitting here on retreat and we feel, wow, it's amazing that I'm on retreat. Like it's amazing I have the opportunity, I have the resources and the support and the money and the time and there's teachings and there's teachers and there's sangha and it's warm and like, wow, this is amazing. This is like rare. And the heart feels that appreciation and joy. So mudita is this, is this gladness. It's this sense of um, being pleased at, at, at the happiness of, uh, of ourselves or of others. Um, again, when I was back in India with uh, Punjaji, uh, one of the things I most uh, appreciated about his teaching was his being, his presence. And... Um, he was um, had the capacity to 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 um, really help people really see the truth very uh, quickly, and um, what was so delightful was when somebody was able to penetrate uh, and to see clearly. There would be this celebration of like a, of sort of illumination, and he would just laugh and and just be so jubilant at their they're waking up. It was just such a delight to watch his being radiate. So the Buddha calls, talks about mudita as the mind deliverance of gladness. It, it's a deliverance of the mind. It liberates the, the negative forces of the mind. Frees us from the idea that we're separate, that we see how easily that we're touched by connection. So... Um, even though it's a rare quality, there's many places that we can turn to that we can cultivate or feel this quality. Whether it's hanging out with a black lamb. Uh, we were in the staff room today having lunch and um, I was grinding some black pepper and there was a young girl, I think she was, must be two years old or something, came up on the table, stood on the table and wanted to play with the pepper grinder because it was a very interesting, looked like a rattle. She had a grand old time grinding the pepper, and it was just so delightful, to, you know, being around children, being around young children particularly, because they're in that place of delight. They're in that place of everything is amazing, like, ooh, look, a microphone, it's all spongy, you know. <laughs> you, you know, with an open heart, you can't help just delight in, in them. They're so playful and just delightful. I was teaching at Spirit Rock, it was a couple of years ago, and my goddaughter, Molly, who's a daughter of Howard Cohen, who's a spirit rock teacher, um, we were giving, I think we were giving the Dana talk or something, 
and uh, she came by to visit with her mom, and um, they were standing at the back, or they came in from through the back door, and she got a glimpse of Howie, who she hadn't seen for a few days because he'd been teaching, and she just ran through the hole and jumped on his lap <laughs> as he's giving the talk. <laughs> because the whole room just, you know, gladdened. Um, airports are a wonderful place. To, you know, generally we associate airports now with horrible security checks and losing your toothpaste. Um, <laughs> but I love to stand when people come, when they, you know, arrive and there's families get reunited, partners get reunited, and there's just such a lot of joy and happiness. It's a great place to practice mudita. You don't have to practice it, you just feel it. It's just very easy. Weddings are wonderful places. Uh, when I'm in Bodhgaya, which I used to go every year, um, I'd watch when the uh, Bhutanese folks would arrive. They, they usually would arrive in a Tata truck. They would, they would stand there, these sort of open bed trucks, um, and they would drive for three days straight, standing, like families, standing for three days to get to Bodhgaya so they could be there for the, um, uh, for the Tibetan New Year, I think is why they were there. And they were just, you know, when they got there, there was just such delight in their faces that, that they were, you know, the birthplace of the Buddha it was probably a once in a lifetime visit for them. And um, just a great place to, again to feel that sense of delight. So the poet Blake, for those of you who've read the poet Blake, and many poets uh, seem to live more readily in this quality. Um, the line from Blake where he says, "He who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity sunrise." It's kind of a flavor of mudita. He who lives. He who kisses the joy as it flies, he who is able to see joy, touch it and let it go, lives in eternity sunrise. And Blake's wife said of his said of her husband, Oh I miss my oh I often miss my husband so no, I I, I, I oh. <laughs> 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 what happens when you when you read something and you realize it's a misquote and you try and change it mid sentence. <laughs> Oh, I miss my husband so. He's so often in paradise. Or somebody else, I forget the name of the author, wrote, Earth's crammed with heaven. This is from G.K. Chesterton. You say grace before meals, and that's okay. But I say grace before the concert and the opera, and grace before the play, and before I open a book, and sketch, and paint, and swim, and walk, and play and dance, and grace before I dip the pen in the ink. So a whole life can be a, can be a, you know, a, a remembering and a relishing in this quality of appreciation. Because really, when we have that mindful, heartful quality, everything is amazing. From a teacup, to snow, to someone's skin, to the way somebody walks, to the way food arrives three times a day from nowhere. So I just want to say a few things about why this is a rare quality. You know, if this is such a delightful quality, which it is, how come we don't? You know, how come they're on TV shows? You know, Mudita reality show. You know, <laughs> <laughs> or whatever. You know. Seven, seven steps to 
appreciative joy. You know. <laughs> so the first thing, which is the uh, the near the near the, the near enemy, or the far enemy of of, of of mudita, is envy or jealousy. You know, we're just downright jealous that someone's got some goodies that we want, and we hate it. So someone comes up to us and tells us, "Oh, you've got a new job in Hawaii with a great." Huge salary, and you met your soulmate. <laughs> wow! <laughs> I hate you. No, that's great. <laughs> so there's often a knee-jerk kind of contraction, like, "Oh, damn! How come I don't have that? It's what I want." Sometimes we think it's because we think happiness is a limited pool, that we think there's only so much rationed in a day, you know, on a retreat. And if that person's really looking happy in meditation over there, and that person was looking really happy at lunch, like, well, there's not much left for me. So just tone it down, guys, okay? Just less of the smiling and the, all that meta stuff. So it's a strong belief system. There's, there's, I, I, I notice this in myself when someone's really happy. It's like, oh, God, God. Hope there's enough to go around. <laughs> or the comparing mind. I know nobody's doing any comparing here, but just in case you were, <laughs> you know, you see somebody, you walk into the Dharma hall and you're early and you think, great, I've come in early, I'm such a good yogi. And someone's sitting there really <laughs> looking radiant and peaceful. Like they've been there for three hours. And there's like, oh, what's it say about my practice? Or we judge what it is that they're delighting in. We're judging what they're happy with, what they're happy about. This is quite a common one, where we, um, where we uh, have some view about what they're doing Maybe we don't like it. Maybe they, they, they just, they're raving about a wonderful movie that they saw that we didn't like or we don't like the director. And so like, oh, you really? That made you happy? Huh. I, I, I had this a lot when I came to the States because you know, it's a different culture. I grew up in England and, um, <clears throat> and a lot of my friends were into football and baseball. And I'm like, you're excited about that? Like, really? <laughs> I did watch the Super Bowl this year. Yeah. Moving right along. <laughs> or sometimes there's just a feeling of meanness. There's just, there's just a meanness. We just don't want that person to be happy. There's a, it's, a sort of, it's an expression of aversion. And uh, or sometimes it's because we can't tolerate the negative emotions that arise in us that, 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 that get triggered by that person being happy. Another obstacle is we are habituated to looking at people's faults, to seeing what's wrong, either in ourselves or in others. And so we're just not turning to seeing the delight. Well, they might be happy, but you know, just what, look what they did yesterday and look how they're dressed. I mean, come on. 
So these, these obstacles to mudita are very painful. You know, green with envy is the reason why green with envy. It's a very painful place. It's very human, but it's very painful. And again, it's a time when we're feeling that envy to, to, to stop. You know, pausing is really good in, 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 in our lives. We take a moment, oh, what am I feeling? Oh, it's, I'm feeling jealous that that person looks really happy. So we f- take a moment to feel inside. What does that feel like? Oh, it feels tight. My heart feels closed. My, my throat's a little contracted. Oh, I'm suffering. This is suffering. Oh, and the compassion phrases, the, the principal phrase of the compassion practice, which it can be done as a, as a practice, just as metta can be done as a practice, is may I be free from suffering. May, or may I hold my suffering with ease. So when we, we, whenever we notice that we're caught, we're contracted, Feel it, open to it if you can. Name it, oh, suffering. May I be free of suffering. May I hold this difficulty with ease. And the supports for mudita, practicing delighting in things. Practicing, you know, mindfulness is a great support for mudita. When I first started practicing in England, I was in London, it was kind of run down at the time and it was gray and it was, in the, it was a very built up urban area and uh, and I'm kind of a nature boy, and so I found it pretty depressing. So what I do as a practice, as with the mindfulness practice, what I would notice what was uplifting. I would, I would purposely incline the mind. You know, these, these practices are uh, uh, sort of within one of the Buddha's teachings about inclining the mind towards wholesome states of being. So we can, incline, we can practice inclining our mind towards delighting in that which is delightful. Beauty, you know, for me, in, in, when I was in London, it was it was inclining my mind towards seeing. For me, what was uplifting was looking at whatever remnants of nature were left—little bits of sky between the buildings and trees, and occasional birdsong or the the moon at night. Um, so we can practice delighting in in delighting in our successes. You know, the there's a the, the specific phrase uh, in, for mud, mudita practice is. Um, um, I delight. Uh, I forgot what it is. I delight. Uh, it's a while since I did this practice, obviously. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to think of the one I use. Um, I delight in your happiness and success. May your may your happiness and success continue to grow. My variation on on the on the, the statement. So um, so we practice in delighting in people's successes. We turn towards them rather than avoid them. We hang out with them. We practice seeing the good in people. It's a wonderful practice. Looking for what's good, what's beautiful, what's what's wholesome, what's working, rather than what's wrong, what's what's not there. The practice of gratitude is a wonderful support for, for mudita, for appreciative joy. Appreciating what we have, appreciating the, the abundance of being here, the abundance of living the life that we do. The very fact that we're here, we have you know, such amazing resources. I just came back from being in Nicaragua and just to be able to drink the tap water is an amazing you know, gift that, you know, Billions of people don't have on the planet you know, to, to rejoice in that, to, to appreciate that. 
Oh, there's, a, there's a note in my, in my notes here that says the mudita phrase, I delight in your happiness and success. May your happiness and success continue to grow. <laughs> I hope you're all feeling mudita for me finding my phrase. Huh? <laughs> time to wrap this talk up. (laughs) So, to conclude, (laughs) it's good to laugh. So, both these qualities, compassion, mudita, um, both reveal this multifaceted quality of the heart. There's many other facets. I often think of um, gratitude and generosity as Brahma Viharas. For myself, I think, of, think of them as the fifth and the sixth Brahma Viharas. They're, they're very beautiful qualities of the heart. Um, so, so pay attention to the quality of compassion. Pay attention to when suffering arises. Pay attention to how you turn towards it with kindness and how that allows this tender quivering of the heart to be there. And notice when, when you're turning your attention towards delight and the happiness and the success of either people you're wishing metaphor or people here. And notice that quality because the more we bring qualities to mind, the more we notice them, the more we incline our minds towards them, the more they, they grow. So let's sit for a few moments. Sensing into the heart, the heart of metta, compassion, mudita, equanimity. Dalai Lama said, love and compassion are necessities, not luxuries. Without them, humanity cannot survive. Thank you for your attention, (laughs) your joyous attention. So it's time for some walking and we'll have some some sitting and some rock and roll at nine (laughs) o'clock. Well, we'll have some chanting anyway.